Welcome to Lawyers on the Block, a crypto law podcast from Roman Kubiak and myself, Kieran Forsyth, in the Private Wealth Group here at Hugh James. Over the series, we'll be looking at some of the major issues and hot topics in the crypto and digital asset space right now. Trigger warning, we are lawyers, so we'll inevitably talk about some of the legal issues involved. But don't worry, we'll try to keep the legal jargon to a minimum. What happens if you hold crypto and, God forbid, someone steals your private key? Who is or are Satoshi Nakamoto, the purported founder of Bitcoin? And what does a major craze in the 17th century, which led to the first ever recorded asset bubble, have to do with any of it? Well, stay tuned to find out. Good afternoon, Kieran. How are you? I'm good, Roman. Thank you for asking. Um, Well, I I say I'm good, but I'm trying to get my head around the, the very bizarre title of this company called Tulip Trading Limited in the context of the infamous bubble of the 17th century and this set of facts um, which we're dealing with. It's quite the case, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah, this is the case of Tulip Trading Limited and Bitcoin Association for BSV and others. When I say others, we've got a whole list of defendants here, haven't we? And yep. they're all dotted across the globe as generally they are in these crypto disputes. disputes. That's right. It's quite the case, isn't it? I mean... Looking at this case, one thing that I did feel slightly better about was uh, my own, or the, the poor state of my own Bitcoin investments at the moment. I say investments, it's more dipping a little toe in to the world of crypto, and I've got some Bitcoin, but uh, they haven't done too well over the past few months. But not as bad as our Dr. Wright here. No, he, he's not the claimant. He's the protagonist, isn't he, really? He is. He's a saga. He is. And, um, well, he's, he seems quite, you know, he seems like he knows what he's doing in, in terms of bringing this claim, certainly has um, put forward some very interesting arguments. But so he's the CEO of, of Tulip Trading Limited, which is a company incorporated in the, in the Seychelles. They are technically the claimant in, in the matter. He is a, an Australian citizen, resident in England since 2015. There's something quite interesting about him, Roman, which uh, I know you're dying to <laughs> to opine on. So stop press, everyone. <laughs> For those of you who know anything about Bitcoin, and you know, I imagine that's quite a few of you now, Dr. Wright is, big reveal, drumroll please, he is Satoshi Nakamoto, the uh, apparent developer of Bitcoin. Well, at least he says he is, mm. so... Certainly, this is this is something which uh, I know the, the judge in the uh, in the last round of litigation alluded to, mentioned that Dr. Wright, so this the, the CEO of Tulip, claims at least to be Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, I think I'm pretty sure I've claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto at one time or another. <laughs> I don't know. You may well have done as well. But to be fair to him, Dr. Wright's probably got a better stake to saying he is than uh, many others and certainly seems to know his Bitcoin, his crypto, and um, the software or the coding that underpins the whole blockchain. Absolutely. I mean, it's putting forward some very niche knowledge arguments, I would say, in, in, in the claim. What is the claim then? Essentially, and, and let's look in terms of the, the, the value of it and what happens. So the, the claim relates to a very substantial amount of Bitcoin, which TTL, so Tulip Trading Limited, claims to own, but is currently unable to control or use 
following what they say was a hack of computers located at Dr. Wright's home office in Surrey. So we're talking about a hack, and as a result of that, that hack removed from his systems the private keys, which would allow Tulip Trading or the Wright family to deal with those assets. Now, to be fair to him, I mean, that hack, it wasn't like just getting someone's computer, opening up a Word document. It it seems like he, he took fairly good steps to encrypt these well. So unsurprisingly, some of the defendants are saying, we think the suggestion of a hack is fake. But if this was a hack, and there's no reason to suggest it wasn't, if it was a hack, it seems that it's a very sophisticated one, or at least done by someone who knows what they're doing and knows who they're going after potentially, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it was reported to Surrey police, but interestingly, <laughs> and perhaps not not, not uh, surprisingly, there's no indication that material progress has been made <laughs> towards identifying the perpetrators. Where do you begin? Where basically? do you begin? Well, right. you begin with... Tulip trading. So this decision from March 2022, which is up until now. So what's happened is, and why we're discussing this now, some six months on, is just recently it's been announced that the Court of Appeal is likely to consider the case again. One of the justices ordered leave to appeal. But let's look at the claim then. So his private key was hacked. Yeah. And I mean, this holiday was held by Tulip Trading. So it wasn't actually held in his own. It's held by Tulip Trading. There's an underlying trust, Tulip Trust. The beneficiaries of that are Dr. Rise and his family. How much are we talking about? I mean, I've, I think I've lost about £200, £300 in the last few weeks on Bitcoin. Anything like that? Uh, no. Um, we're, <laughs> we're talking, uh, and, and perhaps, you know, this may this may go some way to uh, to, to validating his presence in, 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 in the crypto world, but he, he is talking about a loss of, Three billion, a little over three billion. So these aren't paltry sums. No, the, these these are not paltry sums, sums right? right? And certainly worth fighting over. And, and just yep. to explain the the trajectory of the matter, I mean, in an order of seventh of May, twenty twenty one, Deputy Master Nurse actually granted permission to serve all of the parties out of the jurisdiction, and in the case of certain defendants, by email. Right. So when you're looking at service of jurisdiction, we've discussed this in another podcast, haven't we, on the, the lawyer case. Yes. But you, you you need to show that there are effectively, there's there's an issue, a serious issue that needs to be tried yeah. on the merits of the case. Which justifies That serving first out. step in serving. Yeah. So yeah. in this case, so they permitted service by email, service on defendants out of the jurisdiction, now, in the Deloyer case, check that one out. We talk about how, in that case, the court uniquely permitted service by NFT. But we won't talk about that today because we've already dealt with that. But, okay, so that was that first instance. Yeah. So, and what exactly was the claim seeking? It was it was a, a number of remedies, wasn't it? Because these defendants weren't the people who, he's not saying that these defendants stole the private key is he no he's he, he's bringing so the, the the defendants are the um the developers of the network in which his holdings or tulip trading's holdings were held the four networks aren't there in question i think yes yeah. three or four I, yeah and um what he is saying is that they in relation to how much they can control those networks should have a fiduciary duty towards the people that decide to place their holdings on that network, which is a really, really interesting point. And um, Roman and myself deal with fiduciary duties 
Well, not on a daily basis, <laughs> don't we? I mean, to put it into context, really. So for those who don't know, fiduciary duty, and this is a bit legal jargon, but it essentially defines a relationship where one person, a relationship of trust and confidence, where one person assumes a, a role or responsibility and perhaps custody or guardianship over someone or over the finances for someone, some form of control, generally speaking, involves you know from a financial angle so yeah classic examples are trustee and beneficiary you'll have executor and beneficiary but you can have other relationships as well and these fiduciary relationships like this they carry with them certain legal obligations and what dr wright vis-a-vis or via tulip trading was saying is that it's, I've got to hand it to lawyers. This is this is a, a, a it's a it's a good argument. He wasn't saying to the developers, "Right, I've been hacked. You owe me the money." Yeah, but this is a first step in what could potentially be a very long line of litigation if he overcomes his hurdle. He was saying that as the defendants were the core developers of the underlying software, you know where the Bitcoin networks were held, they owed Tulip Trading this fiduciary and or this duty in torts, this tortious duty to help it recover those assets. Yes, absolutely right. And I guess speaking to Satoshi Nakamoto or Dr. Wright, however you want to refer to them, their knowledge, he was saying, well, look, this is quite easy. Once you've got this, I just need a simple software patch and I can get what I need. Yeah, or, or you know, that's what he's hoping. And and it's interesting because he obviously knows how this works in, in practice. It's, yeah. it's certainly the first argument, I believe, in England and Wales in terms of bringing this type of fiduciary duty to this extent, I believe, in terms of what he's trying to to seek. I think that's why the appeal has been allowed. I, I think so, yeah. Either, you know, whether that's on the basis of putting to bed once and for all, whether they actually, you know, can realistically a body of independent developers or software developers owe a fiduciary duty to people who decide to place their holdings on that system from all corners of the globe. Crucially, uh, not only a, a body of developers, but as was mentioned throughout the judgment, a fluctuating body of developers. Well, that's the interesting thing, yes. So yeah. at first instance, yes, you can serve out of the jurisdiction, lovely stuff. Now, the, an application to appeal that was made, and there are a number of grounds for that, weren't there? They said, first of all, that he shouldn't have permission to serve proceedings out of the jurisdiction as there wasn't a serious issue to be tried on the merits of the claim. Yeah. Namely, that there was a good arguable case that it fell within one of the jurisdictional gateways. They, I mean, they felt that obviously, they were the wrong defendants here. They, they didn't owe this either fiduciary or tortious duty. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. You, know, you can imagine a developer one day dropping in and the next month he's no longer involved in, in that network. You know, does that person still owe a fiduciary duty for something that might have happened or will happen in, in, in the future? And to um, whom? I mean, how many people are investing on this network? And yeah. I mean, the legal ramifications of this could be huge. Yeah, it, it really could. And, and actually could be a significant barrier to wanting to develop in the first place. Yeah. So I think that's why it's going up to the Court of Appeal. Let's test this in a court where... This is going to get some serious discussions, some serious submissions from counsel. Lady um, Justice Andrews said, didn't she, that it's uh, of considerable importance and said it was a matter of some complexity and difficulty. I mean, ain't that the truth? Well, absolutely. Yeah. But um, she said, with the real prospects of success, it's not susceptible of summary determination. And 
felt the judge fell into error in deciding there was not even a serious issue to be tried and in the approach she adopted. Yeah, very so, true. So let's have a look then at the, the March 22 decision because there, Her Honour Justice Falk did look at this and felt that in terms of the fiduciary duty, she looked at the, and the we look at it all the time, but it's the, um, the case Bristol and West Building Society in Matthew. It's a 19, well, it's a reported, I think it's 1996 and looks at the fact that for a fiduciary relationship to exist, there has to be some sort of agreement by one party to act for another, such as to give rise to a relationship of trust and confidence. They felt that there was no such relationship here, really, was there? There wasn't this sort of... Well, that's it. Yeah, he, he was arguing that, you know, they, they have this element of control. They can help me. They could have helped me. They can still, you know, help me. And, and I think that that element of control, what she was getting on was that... That is often a feature of fiduciary relationships and may, in broad terms, be a rationale for the concept, but it's not a defining characteristic and is certainly not a sufficient condition for the existence of the duty. So there has to be more than just control. You, you know, you, ha- you have to be, and I think, aware of a position of responsibility. Yeah. And, and that's what's interesting. And that's, I think, essentially why it failed on that point, but is going to be tried further. They're also looking at, she felt that with the fiduciary duty, there's this obligation of undivided loyalty. So this mm. is the classic trust relationship. There's honesty, integrity, loyalty. It depends how you define loyalty because there are regular situations where, you know, individual trustees act, you know, in the case of a family trust, for instance, and there may be individual loyalties. But I think provided you can act impartially, there's a difference, isn't there? You know, acting you can act neutrally and impartially, but still favour one person over another because by dint of law or, oh, yeah. or their personal circumstances. But here they felt that that loyalty, which would otherwise be held towards tulip trading, would potentially conflict with the loyalty which might be owed to other you know, individuals who hold assets on the platform, even if they hold those assets incorrectly and it could expose the defendants to you know to own personal risk and i can kind of understand that on the tortious duty it wasn't realistically an argument that there was a requirement to take positive action to make changes to the software yes could be treated as what it says well what they said was a, an incremental extension of the legal position to impose a duty of care particularly where the alleged loss was you know purely economic essentially so I was just looked at also wider policy reasons. And, you know, there was quite an interesting argument there raised about the policy issues, about what remedy is available to Bitcoin users who lose their private keys. Mm. But again, found that while the test for a real prospect of success wasn't a high one, didn't feel that this met that threshold. Yeah. So kind of st- it fell at the second time at the first hurdle, didn't it? So tulip trading weren't allowed to serve out of the jurisdiction. On, on that point, she talked about, you know, the, on the point of policy considerations, saying that she notes that the Law Commission are currently undertaking a project on, on digital assets, which we've discussed previously, essentially asking, you know, whether the law should be developed in a way that would address all or part of Tulip Trading Limited's case is no doubt something that could be considered by the Law Commission and, if appropriate, Parliament. So I think, yeah, you know, she can see the the points for and against. But Should it be considered? Yes, I think is my view. Absolutely. I mean, whether this is the right remedy, I don't know whether I feel that I go so far as to say that they... Well, then again, I mean, 
it, it comes out, it's like any other term and condition, isn't it? So they're not asking them to remedy the breach itself. What they're saying is we want you, as the people who have developed this platform, to help me put in place a system to remedy or, you know, to help me to recover my own assets. When you look at it that way, I guess, the, you know, if, you, if, if it's analogous to a physical asset, so someone steals my car, there's a witness who knows where the car is, it's it's no different to you know compelling them to to tell me where where that car is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, and it, what's really I think what's great about this case is is you know of course the, the arguments are quite novel and, and interesting itself. But again, it comes down to the forum. You know, the English the legal forum, the legal it? forum yeah. of bringing proceedings. English and Welsh courts are really paving the way in determining these disputes and and to try and justify. Well, not justify. It's it's perfectly justified. The, the comments about why it was brought in, in England and Wales and whether it's, it's okay for that to be brought here and heard here is that the primary connecting factors are TTL's presence in the jurisdiction in the form of its agent and primary witness being Dr. Wright, which is, which is really, really interesting. I mean, some cynics may say there's an element of forum shopping here. Yeah. You know, you've got a company which is based in the Seychelles, you've got an underlying trust which is based offshore, you've got defendants who are based offshore, you've got an Australian resident who's adopted residency here in 2015. But in fact, if he's he's resident here, if the computer question was hacked was here, if the purchases were made here, arguably, there's at least, at the very least, I think an arguable case to argue that this is the appropriate forum. And as you say, I I think our courts have been very willing to tackle these arguments. And I know the the Law Commission Digital Assets consultation that they're running at the moment, which they want responses by the 4th of November, check that and our earlier podcast out on that as well. Yeah. But what they said there is that they think that the, the law is equipped potentially to look at this, whether by way of minor amendments to statutes or perhaps um, incremental changes to common law to case law and you know here we have a case which may well just do that especially if it goes to the court of appeal so yeah you know they are working in tandem there's going to be many more i think you know there's, there's many perhaps thousands or perhaps even millions of people that own cryptocurrency in, in england and wales and as long as you are the rule is or the, the current law as long as you're domiciled in england and wales your assets are treated as as located here you know very fancy word for it lex situs but that yeah. means English and Welsh courts are potentially in terms of cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah, the, the best forum to bring them, and I think actually there's an in- increasing prevalence of, of them hearing such matters, and, and that's a very welcome, welcome thing, and which is why we're we're very interested in it, and why we're bringing this podcast to you. But Roman, it'd be interesting to know has has anything happened recently in terms of any of the defendants? Yeah, so the vast majority of them are robustly defending this as you can imagine but interestingly the first defendants a bitcoin association for bsv they released a press release back in june so some three months after the decision and in that press release they confirmed that they settled with tulip trading limited it was interesting though because i've got it here in front of me so they've settled with ttl because we were already planning to release the software being expected <laughs> so that's why we, you know that's why we said we were really planning to release it so he said that the software was developed with the aim to allow miners to freeze so these are obviously bitcoin miners so you know these aren't well they could be but they're not 
They're not miners. <laughs> you know, not miners going down mining for uh, steel or iron, but they're miners who are mining you know, huge rooms full of computers, which are called nodes, and they're undertaking very complex mathematical calculations to validate transactions. And it's a it's basically first past the post. The first to validate it, that then gets approved, gets chucked on the ledger. It's immutable, so it can't be changed. And they get paid for that with Bitcoin. Anyway, I digress. So they developed this software to allow miners to freeze coins, which are determined by valid legal process to be lost or stolen, such that they may be returned to their rightful owner. So they're saying they're putting in place something along the lines of this patch that Dr. Wright's seeking. The enforcement of the valid court orders containing digital assets on their network is the responsibility, though, is the kicker of the miners. They alone will run the required software and comply with received orders. So they said they've settled the legal action. They said they decided to settle with TTL by agreeing, among other things, I don't know what those other things are, but to release software which will make it possible for a notary service provider to verify court orders asserting the rightful ownership of coins misappropriated in hacking incidents and broadcast them to mining networks in machine-readable language to allow miners to freeze the coins. I mean, there's a lot of hoops you've got to jump through there, aren't there? (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, but they acknowledge there have been a lot of hacks to the cryptocurrency network sector, industry, whatever you want to call it. And it says the fact that uh, Dr. Wright approached the courts to seek the early release of additional tools within such period puts us under pressure, but is not contrary to our goal. And they Mm. state their goal as being to equip the digital currency and blockchain industry with the technical mechanisms and industry best practices to provide remedies upon valid proof of ownership and with judicial due process to restore control of lost or stolen coins to their rightful owner, just as there are remedies available for any asset or property, physical, digital, intangible, or otherwise. Mm. I mean... You know, put it to one side these hurdles, trying to prove who it, who's taken your, you know, cryptocurrency is hard enough. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's well-meaning and I'm sure there's, you know, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement at the end that there's a well-known friendship between Dr. Wright and Calvin Eyre, who's a member of the association's executive committee. Whether or not that influenced this press release, I don't know. Mm. But nonetheless... That's their view on it. Now, for those poor individual developers, I think they're probably hiding out in their various jurisdictions. <laughs> but if you were a betting man, and some would say that anyone who invests in crypto is gambling in effect, if you're a betting man, Mr. Forsyth, what do you think will happen on appeal? I can't see it going through in terms of what he wants, although in terms of what Dr. Wright wants, simply because of the connotations of it will put people off having these networks on which the digital assets are are held. It seems, you know, reading between the lines, I think it seems very much a let's test this at a higher court and, and put it to bed once and for all. But I think what will be interesting is the fact that there has been a settlement on the basis of what he wants. So actually, it's possible. And I think that is always an interesting thing to bring into play. So you know, if you, if you were counsel, you would say, well, what Dr. Wright wants can actually happen yeah. as evidenced by this. Even if it's settled with your mate. Even if, <laughs> even if it's settled with your mate. So why not do it? You know, let's let's bring that. And I'm, I'm sure that they'll be arguing that. But let's see. Let's this wait. is it. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the lawyer case shows that the courts are willing in cases where they consider there to be an injustice mm. and a wrong mm. to permit service out of the jurisdiction. And you and I well know that 
a decision before one judge may be very different to a decision before another. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, I think you and I alluded to at the start, then what I think the the big irony here is is the name. You've got Tulip Trading. Now, mm. you know, who, who would, well, some of us certainly know about the, uh, the Tulip mania that gripped the Dutch golden age. That was when there was all of a sudden this huge, the price of Tulip bulbs went through the roof. So I think it starts in 1634, and then collapsed just three years later. And, you know, there people are paying ridiculous sums for single bulbs of tulips and mm. all because they got caught up in this fad. Yeah. They thought these must be worth something. They were, dare I say it, this is very much a first world problem, but it's almost as if sometimes, you know, you can have too much money and people start speculating in different investments. And some might say that Bitcoin is a 21st century tulips, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I thought that was a, a, quite an interesting irony in the name, and I suppose. And, and the skeptic in me, I think, you know, does think that the name Tulip Trading Limited. I think there's more to the story than than meets the eye. But I, I think maybe that'll come out in the wash, or maybe he just likes tulips. Who knows? Oh well, I tell you, on that twist or bombshell, I think that's a that's a good place to uh, <laughs> to call it a day. So um, yeah, thanks very much, and as always, please let us have your comments. Please rate, review, and like. And uh, yeah, until next time, thanks very much. And there we have it. That wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for listening to Lawyers on the Block. If you made it this far, then you clearly enjoyed it. So why not subscribe to make sure you hear the next episode as soon as it comes out. Remember, nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice. But if you do want to talk to a lawyer about any crypto issues that you may have, then please do get in touch at crypto at hughjames.com.